Tomorrow morning, I will rise at the early hour of 6 a.m. and meet my friend and fellow elder, Chris Huskin, and the two of us will hike to the top of Mount Wilson. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Chuck, <laughs> didn't you just go to the hospital last month? Um, wasn't related to my heart um, in, a, in a physical sense. Uh, what I would say is that I'm going to follow the three tips that, of course, men, next week you'll hear what these are. We'll talk about them in the next year. I, I'm not going alone. These are the three tips for beginning hikers. I, I'm, I'm going to know my limitations, and I'm not going to leave the path. So I'm going to be fine. Plus, there are plenty of people that walk along this particular path. I, uh, the hikingguy.com website says Mount Wilson at 5,712 feet is not the tallest peak in L.A., but it's a great hike with a fun summit. It concludes a fun hike, a good long hike for beginners. How long? Seven and a half hours, 14.5 miles total with an ascent of 4,600 feet. While I can tell you that a year ago I couldn't have gotten a few feet up the hill, um, and this may be a good beginner hike um, for hikers, um, this will be a challenge for me. There are others that are far more advanced at hiking, climbing. This is a walk in the park for them. One of those is a man by the name of Alex Honnold. Have you seen Free Solo? Now, this isn't the latest Star Wars uh, film. This is a, a documentary, an Oscar award-winning documentary about the world's best free climber. And he doesn't use ropes. Here is the trailer. You need to see this. So he's not going to have a lot of trouble with Mount Wilson. Um, <laughs> but if I had told you, now some of you probably knew what this was about before we showed this trailer. If I would told you, hey, this is a guy, he climbs and he doesn't use ropes, would you have been able to visualize that? I mean, until you actually see it, you can't really appreciate, holy mackerel, this guy is going to die at some point. This is nuts. That's crazy time. And, and yet, he's, that's why the, he's such an anomaly. He's, he's a freak of nature. It's, it, it is like a step in human evolution, if you want to call it that. This is, this, this is an ability that is unique to this guy. It's really something. And, and as I watched this, I thought to myself, you know, there's a man who did something equally as challenging, and it's very hard to visualize and appreciate how difficult it was because it took place 2,000 years ago. See, we're going through our text in John today, in John 19, and this is the part of the death of Jesus that we read about, we maybe even seen little films about, we... And yet, because of the time distance between 2,000 years and us, uh, perhaps uh, a bit of cynicism born of enlightenment, skepticism has made us think, eh, you know, was it really that bad? Mel Gibson has a very graphic portrayal of this, and people just lambasted that as, as over the top and not true. Is that really what happened to Jesus? But I think more than anything, because we're so consumed with our lives, we don't spend a lot of time thinking back about things that happened a long time ago and actually being able to, to feel and be moved by it. See, I watched this trailer and I'm thinking, wow, that, that's moving. And it's not just the dramatic music, it's 
the visuals. We will read today's text, and I want to focus to begin with on that aspect of Christ's physical suffering that was his walking to where they were going to hang him from a cross. It has now become known as the Via Dolorosa, or the way of suffering. And it will end this journey of his at a place called Golgotha. This is the place where Jesus would finish suffering for the sins of all who would ever believe from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Matthew and Mark's Gospels translate the Greek word Golgotha as the place of the skull. If you translate that into Latin, it comes out Calvare locus, which is where you get the English word Calvary. So you've perhaps heard Jesus died in the cross of Calvary, and then you've heard Jesus died at Golgotha, and Jesus died at the place of the skull. Well, you need to know they're all the same thing. It's the same thing translated into different languages. The church where I gave my heart to the Lord was called Calvary Christian Center. We have brothers and sisters in Christ down the street here on Colorado at Calvary Chapel. Sometimes we use that word and we're not even sure where did that come from. Well, Calvary was the place where Jesus would have spikes driven into his hands. And because of time's passage, we don't really comprehend the difficulty level associated with the sacrifice of Jesus. Last week we detailed in some way the, the beating he received, but now having been turned over to the Romans for crucifixion, the suffering is going to escalate. Jesus was delivered over to the Roman authorities at Pilate's palace, and then he had to put a beam, a cross beam, likely 100 pounds in weight across his shoulders and walk roughly 650 yards uphill. Say 650 yards, I thought it would have been a lot further the way it's all talked about and the way it's dramatized. That's six and a half football fields uphill with a 100-pound beam on your back and you've just been beaten nearly unconscious and you're bleeding. Think about the pain and the suffering associated with that and add to that, along the way people are throwing things at him, spitting on him, mocking him. And the reason I wanted to bring more of that detail into the first part of our message today is because in the Gospel of John, we don't have those details found as we do in the other three historic accounts. In John 19, verses 16 through 18, John very quickly summarizes, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. They crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. One of the reasons I am grateful for the four Gospels, the four historical accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is because they give us different perspectives on the same event. Arrhenius of Lyons wrote in uh, 180 AD that he was uh, confident and thankful that God had given four Gospels he likened it to the four winds from the north, the south, the east, the west. What he was saying is that there's a symmetry and a harmony to different perspectives of the same event. Let me give you a for instance. An oceanographer, a painter, and a surfer all go to Santa Monica at sunset. The waves are really great, and there are tons of surfers in the water. And the sun is setting, a beautiful California sunset. 
And along that way, you'll also see a school of dolphins hopping out of the water, moving to wherever the fish are to eat. Now, all three of these, the oceanographer, the painter, the surfer, all see the same thing, and then you say, you've got 500 words to write. That's a blog. It has to stay at 500 words. You've got 500 words. Tell us what you saw. Well, obviously, they're all going to come back with different things. The oceanographer is going to go, dolphins. Did you see the dolphins? It was amazing. The sea, the life. And then the painter is going to go, look at that sunset. See, their experience is going to be, I see a sunset, it's beautiful. Maybe they'll mention the dolphins. They probably won't mention the surfers. But the surfer dude, he's going to be like, oh, man, the waves were awesome. And he's going to be writing about how there were tons of guys and girls out in the water waiting for the break, man, Bodie, or some kind of reference to movies. He's going to say, yeah, maybe there was a web, maybe there was a, a, a... a school of dolphins, I don't know. Maybe there was a sunset. See, you're going to write about the thing that grabs you. And this is really what happens in the New Testament, particularly the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. They're not contradictions. They're different perspectives on the exact same thing, different emphases. Unfortunately, uh, critics of the New Testament have used the different viewpoints as sort of a generic indictment of the Bible's trustworthiness. The Bible's just full of contradictions. And a lot of people buy that without ever having investigated the matter themselves and assume because someone said there were inconsistencies or contradictions in the gospel accounts that Scripture cannot be trusted. And I want to give you an example of this. These are two parallel accounts to more full accounts from Matthew and Luke that talk about essentially the same thing John's talking about. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 44, Matthew writes, and those who passed by him derided him as Jesus was on the cross, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. All right, so now we go to Luke's Luke's rendition, Luke's blog on the event. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So here you go. A contradiction, right? Matthew says that they both were yelling insults at Jesus. Luke says, One of them was yelling an insult, and the other one had some insight into who Jesus was. How in the world could this be reconciled? I guess the New Testament is not reliable. Let's go home. No, this is very simply explained. The torturous experience of crucifixion was hours in length. The New Testament even talks of that. Hours of suffering. Three hours passed 
just watching the dark storm come into the area. So it is likely, it probable, that what Matthew is describing is the mocking that took place at first, and then after the other guy heard Jesus' response to the insults, heard him praying and using the scriptures and talking for hours to his heavenly father, within hearing distance of him, came to his senses. The spirit of God worked in his life. He starts to see, stop this. Do you know who this is? This is a completely reasonable explanation. The Holy Spirit went to work. This man came to faith. You see, it's beautiful. John gives us the short version because he's emphasizing his perspective. When we'll get to more of that in just a moment. Matthew tells the part of the story that he thinks is significant. And Luke rounds out his account with what he considered to be an encouraging story for Luke's primary Gentile audience. Forgiveness extended to a pagan criminal who believes. It's a great book. I'd encourage you to buy it. Greg Gilbert's Why Trust the Bible. You can get it on Amazon. It's fairly inexpensive. It's fairly small too, just 100 or so pages, and it's easily read. Um, and it, it would give you uh, more confidence that the scriptures you're reading are actually God's word. He says this, the fact is a whole lot of inconsistencies alleged by skeptics turn out not to be problematic at all when you read them a little more carefully. Despite two centuries of nitpicking, scholars have proposed plausible resolutions to every single one of the alleged inconsistencies. You just need sufficient intellectual integrity to take the time to look them up in a book. Now, while the Apostle John gives less detail about the walk to Golgotha, he gives his own detail in some creative ways about the death of Jesus, bringing his own emphasis and these details demonstrate his account is supremely accurate because John actually records that he is there on site. People aren't telling him this and he's relaying it to you. He's saying, I was there, let me tell you what I saw. I was an eyewitness. Jesus actually talked to me. So what did John see that he felt was important enough to share with all of us? Three things this morning. One, John saw the sign's significance. This is unique to John's gospel. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. What's unique to John's gospel is the relaying of the data that Jesus, the king of the Jews, was written in three different languages. What's also clear from John's gospel is that Pilate had run out of gas with the Jews. He alone records that Pilate was responsible for posting the details. Normally, the sign over their heads would just have the crime for which the criminal was being punished. And in Jesus' case, Pilate didn't think Jesus had done anything wrong. So he wrote, the king of the Jews, which obviously angered his enemies, the Jews. 
and Jesus' accusers. But this time, Pilate had had enough of them and ignored their requests. It's quite possible that Pilate meant to cause the Jews to feel their guilt. It's also plausible that God passively allowed Pilate's vindictiveness to correctly title the suffering Son of God. For our benefit, what we see is a sign over Jesus' head in three languages so as to not be confusing to anyone that our king was taking on our sin. We see John pointing out the title King of the Jews and then by contrast giving this title to the Sanhedrin, the chief priests of the Jews. Jesus is the King of the Jews, the critics, the the accusers of Jesus, the chief priests down here. I'm comforted by the reality that in God's sovereign plan, up to this point, we've seen Pilate be a bit of a weenie, you know, pressured into doing something he didn't want to do. And at some point, he, he gives up the ghost and decides, you know, I can't give in anymore. I'm not going to change the sign. In fact, some translations indicate that in the, in, in, the, in the tense, the present tense that he is saying this, what Pilate is saying is, what I have written will remain that way forever. And, and isn't that true for us? Jesus, the king of the Jews. More importantly to me, though, is this idea that, you know, Jesus did not on the cross go, finally, Pilate speaks up for me. A little late there, chief. Um, Jesus needed Pilate to be spineless. That was part of God's plan, that the spineless governor of the territory would allow these people to crucify Jesus because Jesus knew his purpose was to die. His purpose wasn't to rule that world. His purpose was to enter into heaven and present his blood as the sacrifice for the sins of everyone who would ever believe all over the earth. This is the glory of Jesus. And now that the deed's done, Jesus, you know, nothing Pilate can do to stop this ship, he's free to all of a sudden develop a backbone. I, I'm thrilled that John recognizes these little details. He shows us the significance of the sign. John also saw the Scripture's fulfillment, and this is equally as fascinating to me. In John 19, verses 23 through 24, it says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose garment, whose it shall be. This was to fill, fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The entire event of the crucifixion was a public spectacle. Uh, a bloodthirsty crowd watching executions for entertainment. Uh, and you have to really imagine the chaos of the crowd. If you've ever been to a large event, a sporting contest, a political protest, you can tell when things turn ugly. Like if your team is uh, about to win a game and a referee blows a call and it's a home game, you can feel the anger, the palpable sense that if we could get to this referee who blew this call, 
it might be the end of their existence. You've uh, potentially been at a political rally and seen it go from a peaceful thing to an ugly thing very quickly. And it's a scary thing. In Jesus' case, there was a mob of people that were yelling insults at him and throwing things at him and spitting on him. Uh, people who didn't have any idea what the backstory was. They just wanted to be violent. They just wanted to be ugly. Jesus is in the middle of this. They're casting lots for his clothing to humiliate him. And John sees the fulfillment of Psalm 22 in his own unique way. Perhaps you're familiar with the other gospel writers' um, recollection of what Jesus cried out on the cross. It's one of those things that most people can remember from memory that Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. Others may not be aware that he was actually quoting from the Psalms. Many scholars believe that Jesus was likely, because he had the time to, pray the entirety of Psalm 22, which includes verse 18 about the casting clothing for lots, which John recognizes in his gospel as something that's important to remember. I want to read this section of Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18, and see if you can appreciate the miracle that is the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus reading this and and meditating on it and speaking it to the Father while he's hanging on the cross. I am poured out like water, all and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And here we are with verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John alone recognizes the fulfillment of verse 18. It's something that King David uttered centuries early, but now Jesus is in the present fulfilling as a Messiah coming to save us. He adds this detail, John does, so we'd understand and appreciate at a greater level the plan of God, how it's been fulfilled in Christ. And from God's standpoint, the outcome was never in doubt. Jesus obeyed the Father as the Father knew He would. He had ordained from all eternity that Jesus would suffer and die and be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the children of God. And now He sits at the right hand of the Father. John's unique perspective is he sees Scripture fulfilled. Zarcy Sproul writes, John is zealous to help his reader understand that what happened on the cross was not an accident of history, but it came to pass through the invisible hand of a sovereign providence. You and I can take great comfort in knowing that God's always in charge. However, John isn't done adding his unique perspective to the passion of Jesus. Yes, we know that John, in fact, saw the sign's significance, and he saw the scriptures fulfilled, but... John also saw the Savior's tenderness up close and personal in a way that the others didn't. 
And we read verses 25 and 27. The soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John, throughout his gospel, has referred to himself in the third person so as to not become the story. He says that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is not the first time he's used this, this moniker for himself. He's standing nearby with Jesus' mom when Jesus talks to him. Again, remember, the writer of the Gospel of John is giving an eyewitness account. This is what Jesus said to me. John was standing next to Mary, and Jesus says something interesting uh, to Mary, his mother. He says, woman, behold your son. Now, it's interesting because in our generation, um, you don't hear a lot of guys around the house referring to themselves, uh, uh, their spouses, uh, this way. I mean, I don't come home and go, woman, uh, that wouldn't go over so well at the Ryer house, just for the record. Um, but this is one of those things where in context, in the original language and culture, he was actually using a word that was frequently a term of honor or a title of endearment. Jesus was being tender to his mother even as he was suffering. Jesus used this same term when he rescued the woman caught in adultery and saved her from condemnation. It was a term of gentleness. Our Lord was being honorific to his mother even as he experienced the horrific in front of her. But it was this side of Jesus that John noticed, his kindness, his gentleness, fruits of the Spirit for us, who Jesus was. And the Apostle Paul told his protege, Titus, that this kindness experienced by us would lead us to repentance. See, God's kindness, God's mercy, His gentleness, His tenderness, when experienced, creates affection for Him and commitment to Him. The writer of Hebrews says He's empathizes with us because Jesus struggled in every way we have but yet is without sin and and the reason it's imperative that we know that is because we can come to him in this time of weakness in this time of failure and say I've blown it and he will graciously say thank you for confessing that yes your sin does hurt me but I'm willing to forgive I died for your sins I want you to be restored to close relationship and fellowship with me. Keep coming in. Keep coming in. My death has paid the way for you to be able to enter and have your needs met. If you and I are lacking zeal for the Savior, you're lacking a passion for Christ that would make you want to obey Him. Uh, You're lacking a desire to see Him work through you to accomplish His mission in the world. Your problem is that you don't comprehend the depth of his love and affection for you. This is what a gospel-centered church is all about. It's about saying the problem isn't your will. The problem is that you haven't been moved by the reality of the grace of God. You know it intellectually. 
you know that free climbing sounds difficult, but until you actually see it, you go, that's wild. See, until you actually sense and believe and know what Christ has done, how he has suffered for you, you won't recognize the tenderness and the compassion associated with the holy God of creation coming to rescue you. Perhaps during this season of Lent, you can ask him to help you see what actually went on at Golgotha. You can ask him to lead you to the cross so that you can see the tenderness of Jesus for yourself. For when we clearly see the King of the Jews suffering for us, we see his love. Let us pray. Father, we need your spirit to guide us in this time. I pray that you would give us grace to comprehend afresh and anew what you did for us at the cross.